0: In 1939, on the brink of World War II, the British government created a large number of posters to be displayed throughout the country. You might have seen some reprints of these posters. They read, keep calm and carry on. It's become popular to uh, print t-shirts or water bottles or whatever bearing this little slogan with a crown above it symbolizing the state. These posters were intended to strengthen morale and prepare the populace for what was coming as Britain teetered on the brink of war. And in John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled, in a roughly analogous way. The disciples obviously were troubled. Jesus had been talking about going away from them, where they cannot follow. Jesus has spoken about being betrayed. He has spoken about Peter's imminent denial of Jesus, and that he would betray Jesus, denying him not once, but three times, implying a severe trial. And so the disciples were understandably perplexed. Furthermore, as Hendrickson points out, the question was likely in their minds, how can one who is about to be betrayed be the Messiah? Surely the question of whether they had misplaced their confidence loomed large in their minds as everything seemed to be coming to a bad ending. Hence, because their faith was wavering, hence Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, keep calm and carry on. And he says, believe in God. Believe also in me. At this crucial hour, Jesus wanted them to look to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who had been a refuge and a help to his people generation after generation constantly fulfilling promises that in the time of the giving of them were unbelievable a son for example from the loins of one who was so old that as Roman says he was as good as death And that from the womb of his 90-year-old wife. A rescue from the world's great superpower, Egypt. Water from a rock as the people traveled through the wilderness. The displacement of giants in the land of Canaan. So that the children of Israel could have a place to call their own. Jesus wanted them to look to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who had promised the unbelievable. Believe in God, he says. And Jesus also wanted them to simultaneously trust in he himself. Believe also in me, Jesus says. Though he was about to appear to be a failure of a Messiah, Jesus was, like Joseph so many centuries prior, a servant sent by God ahead of his brothers into a difficult situation in order to prepare a place for them so that he could receive them to himself. Jesus was not about to fail at the cross, but rather to succeed at the cross, fulfilling the mandate of his Messiahship. It was for the very purpose of going ahead of his brothers to prepare a place for them that where he is, there they may be also, that Joseph was sold into slavery to the Midianites and carried in a caravan into Egypt. It was for the very purpose of going before his brothers to prepare a place for them that he became a servant in Potiphar's house and eventually was thrown into the pit, the jail, falsely accused, an innocent man suffering. It was for the purpose of going before his brothers to prepare a place for them. So that there, where he is, there they may be also. That Joseph suffered these things. And it was for that very purpose. To prepare a place for them. That Jesus also was sold into the hands of the ungodly. The innocent, suffering servant of God. Providentially placed by God in such a circumstance so that He might prepare a place for His brothers that where they are or pardon me, that where He is there they may be also. Jesus was not about to fail at the cross but to succeed at the cross doing exactly what God sent Him to do fulfilling the mandate of His Messiahship doing a Christly work on behalf of his disciples. And so he speaks to them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Keep calm and carry on. Trust God. Trust his Messiah. Hendrickson says, this exhortation is based on the love of the most tender and self-forgetful character. For when Jesus uttered it, he himself was troubled in spirit. The agonizing shepherd facing the cross comforts others. He consoles the very men who have just demonstrated their selfishness and who are going to be offended in him. Was there ever a kinder shepherd, half so gentle, half so sweet? This is the context of our passage today. And the basis on which the disciples may be comforted and keep calm and carry on is what Jesus says in the next couple of verses and what we will spend the rest of our time this morning considering. Jesus will bring to pass the purpose of God to dwell with his people forevermore. Before we get to that, however, let's consider the Old Testament background of the idea that God will dwell forevermore with his people. In the Old Testament, God promises to dwell with his people. Consider, for example, Exodus 29:45, and 46, which providentially we had read for us earlier in the service, in which God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. However, this purpose, or pardon me, this promise was both limited and conditional. It was limited in the sense that God would simply have his tabernacle or his temple in the midst of the Israelites but there would always be a curtain between God and His people. So yes, God was in the camp, but there was a curtain between His holy presence and the people of Israel. It was conditional in the sense that the Israelites had to obey God in order for them and Pardon me, in order for God to dwell with them from generation to generation. Consider Leviticus 26, verses 3 and 11, in which God's presence among the people is stated to be conditional upon obedience. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. Of course, we know from reading the rest of the scriptures that the Lord eventually, for a time, banished his people from the land to Babylon, away from his special presence due to their infidelity. And eventually God removed his special presence from the land altogether in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And God made His covenant with Israel obsolete, as Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 puts it. So what of the stated purpose of God to dwell with His people? And that forevermore. Consider Ezekiel 37, 26D to 28, in which God says, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. When God made the Old Covenant, that is, the Sinai Covenant, obsolete, did He abandon this purpose? of dwelling forevermore with his people? Did he renege on his promise to dwell forevermore with his people? Not at all. The Old Testament anticipates a new covenant. As we have learned in our Old Covenant sermon series, the Old Covenant was insufficient to bring about the blessedness that it hypothetically holds out. This is not because of some defect in the covenant itself, but because of a defect in the people. Our fallen human nature makes it impossible to attain what Paul calls in Romans 10, 5, the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Which he says Moses writes about. This is the nature of the old covenant. We cannot obey sufficiently enough that, as Leviticus 26.11 says, God will make His dwelling place among us, and His soul shall not abhor us. We cannot meet the conditionality of the Old Covenant. So the Old Covenant is faulty, as Hebrews 8 and verse 7 implies, with respect to bringing about the blessedness that it offers. But it is faulty in the way that a measuring tape is a faulty tool for driving a nail. It may be a perfectly good measuring tape, as the Old Covenant was a perfectly good covenant. But it is the wrong tool for the job. A conditional covenant can't bring sinners to blessedness. Therefore, it was faulty. And there was occasion, as Hebrews 8 says, To look for another. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant itself anticipates a new covenant. Furthermore, there are explicit statements to this effect. In Jeremiah thirty one, which is the passage quoted and expounded in Hebrews eight. God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What will it be like? Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. In other words, God is going to make an unbreakable new covenant. And in Ezekiel 37, 26D to 28, which I read earlier. God says, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. On what basis will God do this? Just one verse earlier in Ezekiel 37:25 we read God saying that I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. So there is a yet future from Ezekiel's perspective in the Old Testament times there is a yet future covenant and therefore it is a new covenant which shall be everlasting. Obviously, it doesn't mean without beginning, but it does mean without end. And it shall be everlasting for the very reason that, as Jeremiah says, it is unbreakable. And it will result in peace with God and the dwelling place of God with man. This is why it's called a covenant of peace. This is why God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be for them an everlasting covenant. And I shall make my dwelling with them. This new covenant, this everlasting covenant, this unbreakable covenant, results in peace with God and the dwelling place of God with man. We could cite many more more Old Testament verses which indicate a coming covenant. But these are sufficient. For our purposes this morning, it's only important that you see that the Old Testament indicates that the purpose of God is to dwell with His people forevermore. And that God will do this by means of a new covenant. We come now to our main idea. That Jesus will bring to pass that Jesus will bring to pass the purpose of God to dwell with his people forevermore if God is to dwell with man it can't be on the basis of that conditional covenant given at Sinai if God is to dwell with man a new covenant must be established and what does Jesus say as we will read later in the service, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. If God is to dwell with man, an unbreakable new covenant must be established, which we may never be cast out of. And what does the Scripture say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we saw last week, God is not surprised by your sin. Jesus knew that Peter could not, in his own strength, do what ought to have been done. And likewise, Jesus knows that you, in your own strength, cannot do what ought to be done. And yet, Jesus loved Peter anyway. And Jesus loves you anyway, Christians. We are not under the Old Covenant in, order in, in which we have to meet conditions in order for us to obtain the blessedness held out. We are in the New Covenant in which Jesus has done it all for us. So for Jesus, the New Covenant is a works-based, conditional covenant. He had to meet conditions for us. But for us, it is a grace-based, unconditional covenant, which we may never be cast out of or severed from. Jesus has therefore dealt with the conditionality of the promised presence of God among His people by fulfilling all necessary conditions for us such that we can be confident That God's dwelling place with us is sure and certain. As He has promised it will be. And Jesus has dealt with the limitation of God's presence among His people. As I said earlier, God's presence among His people was limited in the Old Covenant. In the sense that God would simply have His tabernacle or His temple in the midst of the Israelite camp. But there was always a curtain between God and His people. What happened when Jesus died? Matthew twenty-seven, fifty-one. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom. As if God had reached down with His own two hands. And tore it. Indicating to us that we may come on it. Because of what Jesus has done. This is how a holy God can make His dwelling place with sinners like us. As Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. That is, through His flesh. Revelation 21 describes the end of all things. And verse 3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And I would add that God will not be behind a curtain but as Revelation 22, 3 and 4 says the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city that is the New Jerusalem and his servants will worship him they will see His face. All of this because of Jesus. All of this because of the new covenant, which is to us grace-based and unbreakable because Jesus has fulfilled every condition for us. All of this because Jesus opened up for us a way into the holiest of holy presence of God. Jesus will bring to pass the purpose of God, which is to dwell with His people forevermore. When He said that He was going to prepare a place for them, He didn't mean that He was going to sweep the floor and change the sheets. He meant that He was going to make it possible that a holy God could dwell among sinful people like us, that we could be received into the Holy of Holies, that heaven and earth could become one. That we might live where God is. That God might live where we are. This is what Jesus meant when He said that He goes to prepare a place for us. That where, we, where He is, there we may be also. Therefore, in view of this, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus puts the imperative first. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? And then he explains, because I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is the logic of the passage. Since he's going to prepare a place for you, let not your hearts be troubled. Our hearts ought to be tremendously comforted by the fact that one day the dwelling place of God will be with man. Our hearts ought to be comforted. I read this week of Rob Gronkowski, a non-Christian, professional American football player, with a very fun, upbeat personality, saying that he has never had a bad day. I'm quite sure he's overstating the case, since absolutely nobody at all has a difficulty-free life. But the point is taken. He lives with positivity and joy as a general rule, as a general pattern, probably, probably not especially hard to do under the circumstances, being a a tall, handsome, wealthy athlete with a healthy body and, you know, everything that this world has to offer at your fingertips, probably not especially hard to do under his circumstances. But listen here, Christian. It ought not to be so hard to do under our circumstances either. I will not tell you that you may never have a bad day. I will not tell you that it is never a struggle to fight for joy. But I will say this. That if Rob Gronkowski has any grounds to be joyful every day, No matter what is going on, we Christians have more. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And after this dark night, making our way through the wilderness toward the promised land, everlasting light will dawn upon us. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, no pain anymore for the former things that passed away. This is grounds for great joy. Rick Phillips tells the story of a woman named Helen who had spent many decades as an overseas missionary. He says, Now elderly, She worked as mission secretary in our church. Helen became ill with cancer, and one day when I was praying with her, she told me that the doctors had not given her long to live. I asked her, how are you feeling about this? Helen beamed and answered, well, I am just getting so excited. She had been thinking about heaven. And now was comforted in anticipation. This is a strong example of the sort of mindset that ought to characterize us as Christians. But many of us struggle to attain to that. Sometimes we struggle to be like Helen or to be like Rob Gronkowski. And we feel more like the glum and cynical donkey, Eeyore, from Winnie the Pooh. If that's you, Christian, press on to greater heights. Seek to obey Christ's instruction to let not your heart be troubled. On the basis that he has gone to prepare a place for you. That he might return and take you to himself. That the dwelling place of God might be with you. That every one of your tears might be wiped away. That you will never have to mourn again or cry again. That you will never again experience pain. For the former things have passed away. Think on these things. And reassure yourself, that yes, if you are trusting in Christ, this promise is for you, even in the interim before you attain to Helen's level of faith. As J.C. Ryle says, there will be room for all believers and all sorts of them, for little saints as well as for the great ones. For the weakest believer, as well as the strongest, the feeblest child of God need not fear that there will be no place for him. None will be shut out by impenitent sinners and obstinate unbelievers." The word uh, in our ESV, in my father's house are many rooms. The King James has mansions from the Latin, which uh, strictly speaking just simply means dwelling place. But we hear something else, and we hear mansions. Right. What Jesus is saying is not that you're going to be balling once you get there, don't worry. You know, you're going to have several floors and the finest finishes. The nicest decorative tiles, and oh, look at those moldings, right? What Jesus is saying is that there's going to be room, like Ryle said, not only for the great ones, but for the little Christians, for the feeblest, for the weakest. There's going to be room to spare. I'm going to go get space ready for all of you. This is what Jesus is saying and then I'm going to be back to receive you to myself in this passage it's not really about the locality of heaven where is it what is it physically going to be like that's not really the focus here when Jesus says I'm going to return and take you to be he doesn't say there or in that place or whatever he says take you to myself That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is going to make sure that there's enough space for everybody that's trusting in Him. As Ryle said, all believers and all sorts of believers. The big ones, the little ones. The strong ones, the feeble ones. Jesus is going to bring them all to Himself. And there's going to be plenty of space for each and every one who is trusting in Christ Jesus. We ought to think on these things and speak to our hearts. Heart, don't be troubled. Yes, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. One day this is going to be behind us. We sang earlier in the service, "When Christ shall come, with shout of acclamation, to take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. We're about to sing now. I am bound. Remind yourself of this. I am bound. I am bound for the promised land. We may be in the wilderness now, but God is going to get us across the Jordan and into the promised land. So as you make your way through this wilderness, let not your hearts be troubled.